Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, we serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Today we are parking the car at the second Sunday after Christmas. This, uh, depending on what day of the week Christmas falls on, which is variable, uh, sometimes we get an opportunity to celebrate the second Sunday after Christmas, and sometimes we don't. And so some of these readings may be a little bit new to you, and uh, certainly we don't hear them every year in the uh church service and divine liturgy. However, this year we do. And so we're going to be looking at the gospel reading of Matthew 2, 13 to 23, the Old Testament reading of Genesis 46, 1 to 7, the epistle reading of 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. Pastor, uh, gospel reading, Matthew 2, 13 to 23. You want to share that with us, please? Sure. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that was spoken of by the prophet might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Okay, there you have it, Matthew two thirteen to 23. We have the uh, follow-up to the visit from the Magi, a um, very, very bloody follow-up. We have the slaughter of the innocents, which is uh, generally what that's referred to in Matthew 2. We have the flight into Egypt, and that has nothing to do with an airplane. We have uh, the return of... Mary and Joseph and Jesus, uh, but then they get a little bit of a detour as well, and it tells us how Jesus ended up in Nazareth. Uh, there's there's a lot of things here to talk about, and uh, Pastor, I know that it is uh, your wheelhouse with regard to this uh, early <coughs> church history, and so uh, right off the bat, I want to ask you, you know, whenever we have a Herod... Um, you know, it's like 
my brother Daryl, my other brother Daryl, my other brother Daryl. It uh, it can be quite confusing. And then we have uh, down in verse 22, Archelaus uh, was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. Uh, can you uh, you know briefly? We don't we don't need the uh, the full load, but can you briefly give us a little bit of this Herod? history so we know who the players are yeah um i'll do it as briefly as possible um we have two different herods being talked about in this particular gospel lesson we have at first herod the great uh, who is the herod we're talking about at the beginning and then with secondly we have herod archelaus who would be his son now the first herod uh, of course is the one that uh, built all the buildings that still stand that are famous um, he's the one that was kind of paranoid and he's the one who had the most power out of the family um, and he dies approximately uh, three or four bc and so that kind of gives us a time frame for this as well uh, the birth of christ and even uh, uh, the time when he was uh, ministering we can do the math from there as well uh, so this is the first herod and this is happening pretty close to the end of his life when he was pretty paranoid uh, in fact uh, so paranoid in fact he had some of his own kids killed uh, he had some of his um, uh, lady friends killed as well um and uh, uh, he even had arranged so that when he died, people would mourn because he wanted uh, a large number of the wealthy people of Jerusalem taken out into the amphitheater and slaughtered uh, at his death so that there would actually be weeping as his body was carried away. So that's Herod the Great, the first one that we're talking about, who did the uh, death of the people in Bethlehem uh, that we hear in this particular gospel lesson. The second one is Herod Archelaus, who would be the son of this Herod the Great, um, who is a king, um, but he's not as king of as much space. He's the ethnarch, uh, that'd be the, the ruler of the Jews, the, that particular ethnicity. And he rules Samaria, Judea, and Edumia. Edumia would be the Latin pronunciation of Edom, which is actually where Herods are both from, which has a certain amount of irony to it as well. If you look back at the story of Jacob and Esau, um, Esau is supposed to be the, the one receiving the promise, and yet he sells it for a, a, a pot of soup, a, a bowl of beans, or however you want to say it. Um, but his descendants are Herod the Great and Herod Archelaus. Uh, and so he's ruling um, these cities for about nine years from 4 BC, 3 or 4 BC, when his dad Herod dies, until about 6 AD. Uh, and he's removed by the Roman Emperor Augustus. Um, and Augustus is the one then that puts, um, at that time, Judea under his direct rule under a governor or a prefect, which is how then Pontius Pilate comes about, uh, instead of it being a, another descendant of Herod uh, that's ruling Judea at that time. And so those are the Herods we're talking about. Is that enough? Or uh, Well, I, I hate to go down another rabbit hole, but uh, how is this related to the Herod uh, of Jesus' time when, uh, when Herod is um, the one that Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, and then Herod and Pilate became friends that day. And then we also know that there's a lady by the name of Herodias. Uh, are these people related, or is this a coincidence? No, they are related. In fact, um, Herod Archelaus would be the 
older, I think, brother of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the one who, in Jesus Christ Superstar, sings, You are the Christ, yeah, the great Jesus Christ. Uh, show me you're not a fool. Walk across my swimming pool. Yeah, great, That's great that one. Clip, yeah. um, this they're the brothers of Herod Archelaus, who then there was ruler of Judea at this time. That we're talking about the second half of this. So uh, those are three of the different Herods, um, and then you have Herodias, um, who is the. Um, I got to figure her out. She's the wife of one of the Herods, and so that's a different. Uh, person named that. And even some of the slaves and people in the family were named uh, Herod after that. Um, we see that in uh, different places in scripture as well and in history. So Herod is an egomaniac. And so he has uh, sons, uh, I think I can name them here, Antipater, Alexander I, Aristobulus IV, Herod II, Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Philip. Uh, and out of all of them, Philip is the one I think that lasts the longest as a ruler because some of the other ones are a little bit iffy in their um, their lifestyle choices, maybe would be a way to say it. Okay. Well, that uh, I think that's very, very helpful uh, to put this in time and in history and to show how these people are all connected. Sometimes it can be quite confusing. And uh, to be able to, to lay this out, uh, when you talked about uh, Herod being an egomaniac and naming all, uh, most of his kids, uh, Herod or Herodias, helps us understand how this egomaniac, for fear of losing his power, would offer some such a horrific edict that all the children, male children in Bethlehem, two years old or under, should be killed. That, that, is, that is unconscionable that somebody could do that. But when you fear for power, these are the kind of things that happen. And uh, it appears that that's exactly what happened. Now, uh, why wasn't Jesus, I mean, Jesus came to die. Why wasn't Jesus killed then at uh, one or two years old? Um, Jesus is not killed at this time for the sake of the gospel. His time was not right. Um, it's very possible he could have been killed, right, uh, if, if uh, God hadn't intervened. Uh, that's a very likely situation. But if that was the case, then there would be no church. There would be no apostles who had learned from him and knew what to do when he, got, when he ascended uh, and died. There would be no reason to even pay attention to the fact that he had risen from the dead until he had first preached and taught and proved that he is God, and then uh, also uh, was visibly uh, a part of society when he was crucified. So we have God's perfect timing at play here. Um, there are times in Jesus' ministry when he says, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, uh, because it's not his time yet to die. And uh, all these things kind of fit together into, into a package. Pastor, the flight into Egypt... And we see here, and I want to talk about more about this when we come back from our break, but um, the, the flight into Egypt, um, why is this significant um, apart from the fact that it fulfills Scripture, or is it? It, it is uh, significant because it does fulfill Scripture, and that's the main reason. Um, I know that uh, today in our modern world, uh, a lot of people, for political reasons, try to manipulate this 
particular account and say that Jesus is a refugee, and so we should bring in a lot of refugees into our nation. And I don't want to get into the politics of that. Uh, There's nothing wrong with having refugees uh, so long as you handle it the right way. But that's not what Jesus was. All of this was a part of uh, Roman territory. Now, at that time, of course, uh, Israel is not technically a province. That's not going to happen until um, until Augustus, about the year six B or six A.D. Um, but it is a dependency or a, a, a country that is basically under Roman rule, even though it's kind of like a ter- U.S. territory today. Yeah. That's not quite a state. Yeah, it's a dependent state. Um, and so it is under rule of Rome, even though it's technically not under rule of Rome. Um, so when he goes from Israel into Egypt, it's not that he's a refugee. He's going from one, it's like going from Nebraska to Iowa, essentially. Or maybe even closer would be from Florida to Puerto Rico. Uh, they're still in the same, uh, same country. Um, it is important because Abraham is in Egypt uh, with Sarah. Um, the Israelites go down there during the time of Joseph, and uh, the Exodus takes place there. And God says in all these instances that I have called my son from Egypt, and this is then ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. It is uh, amazing all the different aspects of Jesus' ministry that are kind of a retracing of the children of Israel and the Exodus. And uh, I'd like to draw more on that later, but I don't know if we'll have time in this program. Proclaiming the One, second Sunday after Christmas. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, we serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Many people are surprised when they realize that Christmas is more than a day. It's a season. It's a very short season. And sometimes there are two Sundays after Christmas before we have our celebration of the Epiphany. Great Lords are leaping. Uh, There you go. So there's 12 days in between. And uh, in this second Sunday after Christmas, we've been looking at the gospel reading, Matthew 2, 13 to 23, kind of the rest of the story after the uh, miraculous visit of the Magi following the star to worship the Christ child. And we see the, uh, the horror that ensues with uh, egomaniac. I loved you. I love that uh, characterization of Herod the Great, and he's called Herod the Great because there were a lot of great things that were accomplished under his rule. Uh, politically speaking, uh, that way. But he was a great architect. I mean, so he's the one who put in motion the rebuilding of uh, the temple into the great uh, edifice that it was at the time of Christ. 46, 50 years of building on that. Uh, he built uh, the 
the building that still exists over the cave where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried. Uh, he built a, uh, you can still see the mountain, although the building has been mostly torn down um, to the uh, south of Bethlehem, the city of Herodium, which is kind of his head headquarters there. Um, uh, Machiris across the Dead Sea, another place that's where John the Baptist would be killed. All these places, uh, and he introduced a new form of architectural building where there was a lot more curves being used round circles, things like that for the floor plan, whereas before in traditional Greek and Roman style, it was very square and rectangle, so um, unique in that regard as well. And uh, while he was great in many ways, including politically, uh, he uh, had a serious flaw, and uh, that serious flaw was uh, he knew very, very little about the actual scriptures, and what little he knew, he didn't believe. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had to call his advisors in to tell him where the Christ was to be born. So we know much about that. He was, uh, as, as happens sometimes in politics, uh, his God was his power. And uh, he was hell-bent, literally, on preserving a legacy and making a name for himself. It led to uh, horrific, horrific things, uh, murder and uh, the slaughter of the innocents here. Pastor, three times in our text, Matthew 2, 13 to 23, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to us that certain things happened in order to fulfill Scripture. Now, you touched on that a little bit toward the end of our last segment, but uh, the first one is in Matthew 2.15, and it says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. And then in verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, and so forth. And then toward the end of our text, verse 23, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that was spoken by the prophet, uh, that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, that he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, Pastor, uh, if I'm preaching this text, that's going to jump out at me because uh, there's three separate instances where the word fulfill is there. What's the big deal? So what if this particular thing fulfills some obscure writing in the Old Testament? Why should the person in the pew or the person preparing a sermon on this text, why should they care? Well, they should care because that's the very reason that Matthew is writing this gospel lesson, is to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was promised and talked about in the Old Testament time. Each gospel writer has a different reason to write. Um, Matthew writes to show how Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament scriptures. Mark writes to show a basic summary of what events took place in the ministry of Jesus. Um, Luke writes to talk about uh, the life of Jesus in a researched way, but also to show how that is influencing the life of the church, hence Luke and Acts together, as well as the liturgical references in the Gospel of Luke. And John is writing uh, his Gospel. Again, he's probably the second most fulfilling the Old Testament, but he's writing these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And really, John's Gospel is kind of... Uh, reflecting and fulfilling specifically Genesis um, and the, the Exodus uh, in, in his particular gospel. So 
Uh, 16 times in the Gospel of Matthew, more than any other of the Gospels, the word uh, plerao is used, which is the word fulfilled. And in all these instances, as well as in countless other ones where he doesn't use that language, uh, but still references scripture passages or events in the uh, Old Testament, Matthew is showing to his readers that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and that uh, Jews, as a result, ought to convert to Christianity and understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of all their religion. In, uh, In the Nicene Creed, we confess that on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead according to the scriptures. And pastor, when I was young, uh, I foolishly thought that this meant, uh, well, the Bible tells us that Jesus rose from the dead, but we don't have any other sources or any other eyewitnesses. And then later on, uh, I realized, or I was catechized, that according to the scriptures is fulfillment language. Um, Why is it important, as we now, New Testament Christians, confess the creeds, confess the Holy Scriptures as the inspired, inerrant word of God, uh, realize that God the Holy Spirit is the author, and that the purpose of Scripture is to teach us, to show us, to reveal to us that Jesus, and Jesus only, is that fulfillment, and the crown jewel is his resurrection from the dead. Well, uh, it is theological commentary on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and it is brought to us from the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. And so uh, it is important for us to believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. And we need to understand, too, that it's not merely a fulfillment of the New Testament or the the Gospels, but rather um, Jesus himself teaches this idea when he says, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah, who was three days in the belly of the well. Uh, We go back to the life of Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac, and the third day they arrived at the place where the sacrifice is going to occur. If you read the Old Testament all over the place, God uses the number three, the third day, talks about it in that way. Uh, And so all of this is God working in the scriptures to make sure we don't miss it. And that we understand who Jesus is, because even with all the work God has gone through to teach this idea, still some have rejected that idea and that fulfillment uh, in Christ. And that's not what God wants. God wants everyone to believe and to be saved by Jesus. So we have here a, a beautiful text teaching us, I mean, the, the specific details of what happened, but also teaching us the importance of Scripture, how Christ and even some seemingly obscure kind of things like the flight into Egypt or living in Nazareth, how these are all a part of God's marvelous plan and all fulfillment of Scripture. We see the importance of Scripture. We see the importance of the Bible. Uh, You search the Scriptures. These are they that testify of me, Jesus says. And then in two places here in our text, in verse 13, And in uh, verse 19, we are told that the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And uh, the Lord appeared to in a dream to Joseph in those two verses. So if the scripture is such a big deal, then why is God speaking to Joseph in a dream? And by extension, does this mean that people today should expect God to speak to them in their dreams? Because you know this is a, a fairly common teaching. 
Yeah, I'd say um, Jesus um, is the whole point of all the scriptures. And so God is speaking to Joseph in a dream specifically to fulfill what needs to be fulfilled in Jesus, to keep Jesus alive in this particular instance. Um, and uh, that's really the entire intent of what God is doing here, to keep Joseph doing what God desires because Joseph is a sinful person like you and me. Um, so God accomplishes his purpose by speaking to Joseph in a dream there. God doesn't need to do that any longer in our world. I'm not saying God couldn't talk to you in a dream. Perhaps he could, but the likelihood is that he will not and that he's, uh, as we say in the beginning of the book of Hebrews, in many and various ways God spoke to his people of old by the prophets, but now in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. And so it's not that God needs to tell you anything in a dream any longer. Instead, he's told you all that you need to know through his son Jesus Christ, who also has fulfilled the scriptures of the Old Testament. Uh, and so everything that you need to know, you already know. And so God could talk to you in a dream, but uh, he's probably not. And if you're hearing voices in a dream, I'd go and talk to your pastor and uh, make sure that what you're hearing matches with the scripture. The people I've talked to that talk to Jesus in dreams usually uh, are hearing messages that are not anything close to what is said in the scripture, which means it's not actually Jesus talking to you. Yeah, I, I had somebody tell me one time that uh, God told them that it was okay to have a husband and a boyfriend because God is love and uh, wanted her to be happy and fulfilled. And I could, as her pastor, I could look at her uh, with absolute certainty and authority and say, that was not God speaking to you in a dream because God would never tell you to do something that is in clear violation of his word. And I think sometimes we, you know, we beat around the bush and we don't want to make people feel bad. And sometimes we just need to be that clear and that blunt that God will never talk to you uh, in a dream or in any other, you know, through a song that you hear on the radio or some other mystical experience. He will never, ever tell you something that is contrary to the word of God. And your pastor, hopefully will be able to help you sort out some of uh, those kind of confusions or whatever. Pastor, how is this, uh, this talking about the fulfillment and talking about dreams, how is this an encouragement for people today, for Christians today, to be in the Word and to actually read the Bible? Well, um, that's really the place where God speaks to you and that you can find out what God actually wants you to know. And so if you are hearing something that does not match this, even if it's preached to you by an angel, as Paul writes, or, you know, if we're talking about what we're, the nonsense we're talking about, uh, if a Jesus in a dream tells you something that doesn't match what is in the scriptures, then you ought to reject it right away. So if you're in the scriptures, you know what they say and understand them, uh, that usually helps set you on the straight and narrow path. You'll be able to tell the truth and the counterfeit apart very very clearly this is proclaiming the one we're looking at the readings for the second sunday after christmas we'll be right back don't change that dial you are listening to knalp 95.7 fm 
Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, we serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln. Come join us for worship Sunday morning, 8 and 1030. Wednesday evenings at 630. You can always listen to all of our worship services live on KNNALP 95.7 right here in Lincoln, Nebraska. Check us out on thecross957.org. Lots and lots of theological programming there, including our... uh, I don't know, I think it would probably be our trademark program, Proclaiming the One, where we look at the readings, the upcoming readings for every Sunday in the church year in the one-year series. We also have Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors, where we look at every minor festival, occasion, feast day that is uh, for us, uh, recorded for us in the LSB lectionary, and we go through all those readings as well. Now, uh, in this third segment, we want to take a look at the Old Testament reading for the second Sunday after Christmas, Genesis 46, 1 to 7. Pastor? So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob sent out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which had gained in the land of Canaan. And they came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his daughters' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Out of Egypt I have called my child, my son. Um, we, we had that... Uh, Uh, prophecy uh, fulfilled in uh, uh, Matthew 2. We talked about that in our uh, first two segments. We have, uh, we got a lot going on here in Genesis 46. Uh, First of all, so Israel took his journey. I thought Israel was a place. I thought Israel was a land, a territory. Here it makes it sound like Israel is a person. Who, Who is this pastor? Uh, well, Israel is a land today, uh, a land where the Israelites used to live, and they were called the Israelites because they were all descended from Israel, whose name originally was Jacob. Uh, but uh, Jacob struggled with God and uh, wrestled with God, and his name was changed to Israel, which means struggle with God uh, after that time. And so we're talking about this man, Jacob, who is the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham, uh, who then also is, you know, descended all the way from Shem, uh, who was on the ark. And so it is a family history passing on the promise from Genesis chapter 3 to Adam and to his sons and all the way down here to this man, Israel. Okay, now, Pastor, thank you. Pastor, uh, briefly, uh, set the stage for us. How did we get to this point where Jacob, 
i.e. Israel, is ready to bring all of his family and all of his livestock and all of his possessions into, of all places, Egypt. What has transpired to get us to this point, and why was he afraid to go there? Well, um, a lot's transpired. Uh, Again, the thing we have to keep in the back of our mind is the promise and that God is always working in the book of Genesis to keep the promise of a Savior alive in the people. That's why he built, uh, he had Noah build the ark uh, to keep him alive, to keep his promise. And here the same thing is true. He's working uh, in history to bring about the birth of Jesus Christ. And so in this particular instance, he's working um, to strengthen the people of Israel, the family of Israel um, by bringing them down into Egypt while there's a famine going on. And so to do this, he uh, he worked in the anger of uh, 11, or t- I guess 10, of Jacob's sons against one of the other ones, Joseph, and they uh, pretended to that he was murdered. They sold him as a slave into Egypt, and Joseph went down into Egypt as a slave. He served as a slave faithfully for many years, slowly worked up his way, uh, was able to translate the dream of Pharaoh into reality, and said there'll be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. Uh, And so you see for like 20, 25 years of his life, Joseph is a slave until finally he's built up into a ruler, uh, the second only in command to uh, the Pharaoh at that time. And it's even bigger picture than what we have in the Bible in the sense of uh, God working in the uh, rule of the nation of Egypt, uh, bringing about the Hyksos uh, regime and kicking out the Egyptians so that you have a Semitic speaking people in charge of Egypt at this time. Uh, So lots and lots of things going on in that way. Okay. And so, you know, you may remember from your Sunday school days, you know, all the intrigue, you know, Joseph, uh, Jacob and his family are starving. They go down to Egypt because they think there's food. You have this back and forth. Joseph recognizes his brothers. His brothers don't recognize him. And through all of this, uh, God is working his work to preserve a people. And by moving into Egypt, they're separate from everyone else. They can grow. They can thrive. They're not tainted by the false gods. All these things are working together. Why is Jacob afraid to go into Egypt, Pastor? Well, uh, I think I'd say that Jacob is afraid because Jacob is old. And uh, Jacob uh, is feeble. And uh, Jacob um, has from his family history, some reasons to not go back to Egypt when his grandpa had some problems with Pharaoh uh, hitting on his grandma. Um, so there's lots of reasons. He, he knows also that God has um, promised him this land, and he's afraid to go into a different land. Uh, uh, and so lots of things probably are weighing on his mind. To, to narrow it down beyond that, I don't know if I could do that. Okay, well, I, th- I think uh, the big thing there is, you know, God promised him this land. And now he's leaving it because he's hungry and he doesn't want his family to die. And does God want him to leave? Does God want him to, uh, you know, basically forsake this land that God has promised. And so I think there's a lot of things going on here. And so God reassures him. And here we have this dream or this vision talk again. 
God spoke to Israel, i.e. Jacob, in, a, in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, uh, here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. I myself will go down with you. I will also bring you up again. Joseph's hand will close your eyes. God gives him a word of promise. Now, Pastor, I don't know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in, uh, in Luther's works, he wrote, extensively. I think we have seven or eight volumes uh, translated into English of Luther's lectures on Genesis. On these kind of passages, and it's several times throughout the book of Genesis, when there's, there's a reference that God spoke to or gave a vision or gave a dream or whatever, Luther maintains that God sent an angel and it was through the proclamation of this angel that God communicated. Now, I don't know if, if that is a pious wish of Luther. I don't know if that was a longtime church tradition that had been handed down. Uh, what do you think about this uh, rather than just this mystical voice appearing out of nowhere that it's an angel? What do you think? I think uh, that that makes a lot of sense in terms of God always working in the same means throughout all of uh, history. He's always working in his word, always working in his word, always working in his word. And so I think the word always has to come from a mouth. And so I think that's a, a good way to look at it and to think about it. I think in all the other instances, that's oftentimes how God speaks to uh, even Israel himself showing up uh, and talking to uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in terms of an angel uh, Jacob is even able to see the angels ascending and descending from heaven uh, on the, the, the ladder. And so I think that I like the idea. Now, can we say that? It doesn't say an angel showed up and talked to him. So in that regard, I wouldn't be quite as bold, but I think it's probably likely. I think it's probably likely, too. And uh, I don't know if it's at the transfiguration of Jesus or at the baptism of Jesus when, uh, when everybody hears the voice from God. And, uh, you know, some say it thundered. Others say an angel had spoken. And I think that's what Luther was connecting that to, and the fact that God uses means to communicate. It also puts, uh, it squashes all of this uh, uh, dream, vision kind of stuff that's going on today. It squashes that. Uh, Pastor, when God says in uh, speaking to Jacob, I myself will go down with you, is this incarnational talk when when he says this or am i reading too much in to already these uh these later chapters of genesis i think it is in a certain sense uh, obviously the incarnation is not going to happen for a lot longer but it is um the same promise that uh, we get in Jesus as Emmanuel and in Jesus ascending, uh, I'll be with you always. Um, and I think that the presence of God in this particular instance is again in the word and that he promises that the word will be with the people. And we see that fulfilled as the people are down there. They maintain the traditions and the, the promises that God had brought before them. And when Moses shows up, uh, they have a preacher again and they know exactly what they're kind of looking for in a preacher then as well. 
One more question along that line in the same verse, and this is uh, Genesis 46, verse 4. I will also bring you up again. Now, we know that the children of Israel, when they were delivered under the hands of Moses, they carried out the bones of uh, Jacob. Um, Is that what that's talking about? Or I will bring you up again. Is this resurrection talk? I think this is mostly just a a directional talk. Uh, The reality is whenever you're headed towards Jerusalem, you're going up, and whenever you're heading away from Jerusalem, you're going down. So I think it's primarily that way. I I think there are other places in the Joseph account where we see ideas of resurrection and things like that, but I wouldn't say this is one. Okay, okay. I uh, appreciate the the frankness there, and uh, we want to be careful to speak where scripture speaks and to be silent where scripture is silent as well. Genesis 46, 1 to, 1 to 7, gives us how the children of Israel ended up in Egypt. We know that God delivered them out of Egypt after more than 400 years of captivity. In the same way, God delivers us from sin, death, and the devil as we are captive to the this unholy trinity. And he does it not with Moses. He does it with his son, Jesus Christ. This is Proclaiming the One, second Sunday after Christmas. We need to take a short break. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We're looking at the readings for the second Sunday after Christmas, and in our final segment, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19, and that's the reason why we have our bumper music, the uh, Christmas hymn, Now Sing, We Now Rejoice. Um, we haven't had a lot of reason to celebrate and rejoice as we as we looked at uh, you know Jesus and his family being forced uh, in their flight to Egypt. We have uh, Jacob and his family uh, nearing starvation, going to Egypt, even though in Egypt they will be um, uh, there for more than four centuries, much longer than they had ever dreamed. We have the slaughter of the innocents. All of these things uh, are very, very real, and uh, they're just uh, a part of history. And here in First Peter, God... Uh, through Peter, is teaching us that even in the midst of fiery trials, we can rejoice. Pastor, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Makes me think, that last line makes me think of uh, the uh, great, great hymn, Entrust Your Cares and Burdens to God's Almighty Care. Uh, that's that's what God invites us to do, and he promises to be with us through thick and thin. Never will he leave us. Never will he forsake us. Pastor, uh, this, this section of Scripture, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19, starts out with the word beloved or beloved. Why is that word significant with regard to who Peter is addressing in this text? Well, um, it's significant because Peter is talking, of course, to Christians primarily. And so it is Christians who then are the ones who are beloved by God. Uh, even uh, John thinks this way when he writes his apost- or his, uh, his gospel when he— uh, Sorry, I mean Luke. I've got to get the names right here. Luke says that um, when he writes his gospel, he calls uh, the, the person he's writing to Theophilus. Maybe we're doing too many radio shows. We'll have to quit doing this all day long. Um, and so Peter is writing got, the same you thing. you got all the Herods right. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Peter is writing to Christians, those who are exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, places in uh, Turkey, modern uh, Turkey or Asia. And uh, he's calling them Christians, and the very definition of being a Christian is being beloved by God. And it's a passive word, too. We, we are the recipients of that love of God. And so these words are comforting words for Christians. Keep that in mind as we go through here. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Why are these words here, Pastor, uh, words of comfort for the Christian who is enduring the suffering or the fiery trial? Well, I think um, it's comfort because the promise is, is that God is with us, Jesus is with us, even as we face these things. And when I read these words, I think of Peter's own uh, ministry when he is arrested and beaten uh, by the Sanhedrin. And he says, um, you know, they rejoiced because they were found worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Um, they, they didn't like being beaten. They didn't like being hit. They didn't like suffering. And yet they know that this present suffering is not worth comparing to the joy that's to be revealed in Jesus Christ. They're looking forward to the future, the resurrection, eternal life, and that's where their hope and their promises. I'm glad you brought that up with regard to uh, Peter, as uh, recorded for us in the book of Acts, because he's really encouraging people here to do what he has lived out, to rejoice when you suffer for Christ. Now, Peter goes into very, very specific detail with regard to what it means to suffer for Christ 
and the other kind of suffering that is out there uh, when we suffer because we break the Ten Commandments or we break God's law. Why is that an important distinction for us, Pastor? Well, it's important because uh, when you do something dumb, uh, there are consequences. As for we it. all do. As right. we all do. So when Pastor Poppy's walking down the sidewalk looking at his phone on the Twitter instead of watching where he's going and he runs into the, uh, the, uh, the stoplight sign, you know, that's what he deserves for that stupid move, right? Or when I um, uh, walk to the uh, bathroom in the middle of the night and kick the side of the door and my toe hurts, that's what I deserve for that particular action. And so in real life, there's um, serious things where if we murder someone, we deserve to suffer in jail and perhaps even to be killed by the state, as, as Peter says here. Um, if we steal from someone, we might deserve to have our hand cut off uh, as a result of that action. That is not suffering for the gospel. That's suffering for yourself. Uh, rather, when we are wrongly accused and uh, abused because of our confession of faith in Jesus Christ, that is when it is the correct suffering. And so maybe we could talk about that now. You know, when we stand up against the government saying to churches to close your door and they fine us and they uh, they come in and they arrest the people who are in the church or we saw it in the news, right? People uh, in their cars in parking lots in Michigan being forced out uh, of the, the um, church parking lot by police officers. Or we see it right now in Australia uh, when, when Christians are trying to go to church and they are arrested or pepper sprayed. That is wrong, and that is suffering for the gospel rather than um, suffering for something dumb you've done. And, uh, you know, it talks here specifically about insulted because of the name of Christ. I think we've seen a lot of that uh, when when people who just want to go to church are accused of being selfish when people who want to hear god's word and receive the gifts of god are are somehow called uh you know anti-government or or even worse like uh, uh racist or white supremacists just because they want to go to church and hear the word of god uh People have taken and sh uh, manipulated and shifted around all kinds of crazy things to put the blame, whether it be for a pandemic or for the economy or for pol politics in the world, on Christians. And uh, I, think, I think we need to get used to it because uh, it, has, it has gotten noticeably worse in the last 10 or 20 years. And certainly noticeably worse in my lifetime. And uh, I think this is probably where we need to prepare ourselves and the people under our care. Because if you claim to be a Christian, you will suffer. And God's word is clear. Count it a joy. Count it a joy when you suffer for the right reason. Uh, not any suffering qualifies here. Uh, you don't show up for work and you get fired. Uh, that's not suffering for being a Christian. Uh, Pastor, there are two times in this text where the word glory, uh, three times now that I see, the word glory is uh, here. Um, if you suffer with Christ now so that you can rejoice when the glory of God is revealed. Um, you are blessed because the spirit 
of glory and of God rests upon you. Uh, be not ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Um, what is this glory? Because we have it used here in several different ways. When we hear the glory of God, what should we think about? And what difference does that make for me sitting in the pew? Well, the glory of God is the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection, the reality that even though mankind could beat and bloody and uh, torture his body in such a way that God just undoes it and raises him from the dead, and in the same way that God is glorifying his son Jesus on the cross, so too we also, uh, how do I say it the right way, partake uh, though, of course, not in the exact same way, but we partake in that very glory when we also suffer the same way that Jesus has suffered when the world attacks us for the name of Christ. Um, we are experiencing the glory of Jesus, and it's not that we're earning our way into heaven, but rather we're participants in what God has already earned for us in Jesus Christ. And so we should expect that, and uh, we should be glad that God is sharing his glory with us and look forward to the full uh, revelation of that glory when Jesus returns and raises us from the dead. Amen. Amen. Very, very well said. Pastor, uh, with the time that we have left, in 1 Peter 4, verse 17, it says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Uh, what does this mean? Judgment begins with the household of God. Well, uh, in a sense, maybe what we could think is that this is uh, Peter saying a similar thing to Jesus when he says, uh, take the log out of your own eye before you deal with the speck in someone else's eyes. Uh, our judgment really does begin within the bounds of the church. We hold each other accountable as Christians. And uh, the main thing is is more so than in sin, we hold each other accountable to our confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And you see this then uh, with the verses that follow this. Um, you know, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly? In other words, we need to be always watching each other and caring for each other and even watching ourselves in our Christian confession and faith because um, we aren't going to save ourselves. Our only hope is Jesus, and we need to make sure that's the center and focus of our attention. It's uh, so much easier to think about somebody else's sin than my own. Especially and when you have a vicar, you know. <laughs> Let's not even go there. Uh, that's that's a whole other program in and of itself. He just walked in. That's yes. why we can. We we do we do need to examine ourselves, and uh, we suffer not because of uh, you know God picking on us. It's not something unique in that respect. Christ suffered for our behalf, and because Christ has suffered for us. He promises that he will be with us in the midst of our suffering, which ultimately will lead to heaven. Pastor, uh, would you bring things to a close by praying the collect of the day for the second Sunday after Christmas? Sure, I'll read it. Uh, Almighty God, you have poured into our hearts the true light of your incarnate word. Grant that this light may shine forth in our lives through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen. Uh, for Pastor Moline, I'm Pastor Poppy. Thanks for tuning in today to Proclaiming the One, second Sunday after Christmas. God's richest blessings in Christ. May we praise Him there. May we praise Him there. 
You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.